Welcome to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. When our plans head south, we might try to apply a quick fix, which oftentimes leads to greater problems. Where our plans are temporary, God's plans are eternal. Join us now as we study the life of Zerubbabel and our journey through the lineage of Jesus with Cheryl Broderson. And now, here's part two of Cheryl's message, Zerubbabel, God has a plan, He always has a plan. No doubt the nation of Judah could not see the divine plan of God. As they saw the end of the throne of David, it's cut off. But how could that be? Because God has promised that there would never fail, never fail to have on the throne of David a king. So, so what's happening Josiah is the last of a godly king. After him, his son Jehoahaz reigns three months. And we're told that he does evil in the sight of the Lord. And he's deposed and carried away to Egypt where he dies. Next is Eliakim. Jehoiah's brother is made king. And his name is changed to Jehoiakim. This is where things get really confusing, right? And he reigns 11 years in Jerusalem and he makes a treaty with Nebuchadnezzar that he will serve, that he'll be a vassal of King Nebuchadnezzar. But he breaks that treaty when Egypt seems to be strong. And Babylon comes and they take him captive, uh, along with many of the captives of um, uh, many of the men and craftsmen of Judah. And he's executed in Babylon. Next, we have Jehoiakim. The CH is hard, like chemistry. Jehoiakim, he becomes king. He's a young thing. He reigns three months. He does evil. And he's taken to Babylon and he's imprisoned there. In Babylon, he has a son, Shealtiel. And after years of being in prison, he's released and he is allowed and even invited to dine at the king's table and to sit among the exiled kings. The last king to reign on the throne of Judah is Zedekiah. And he, like his brothers and his um, uncles, uh, does evil in the sight of the Lord. He ignores the warning of the prophet Jeremiah. He hardens his heart against the word of God. And when Jerusalem is finally besieged by the Babylonians, he tries to go out at night with his guard just to escape uh, to escape the evil that he's perpetrated on the rest of Jerusalem. He's going to leave the rest of those people to the Babylonians, such a hireling. But he's caught as he goes through a hole in the wall with his advisors, guards, and family. He is taken before Nebuchadnezzar, and there he has to watch each one of his sons and guards and advisors executed before his eyes, and then his eyes are gouged out. And he's taken to Babylon. 
all his descendants are murdered. There can be no descendant of Zedekiah ever to reign on the throne. The nation itself, Judah, is completely corrupted. Those left in the land, we're told in Jeremiah 44, were pouring out oblations to the queen of heaven. They said to Jeremiah, well, yeah, we serve your God, but we're also serving the queen of heaven because you know what? All these atrocities and everything came to us ever since we obeyed your word and stopped serving the queen of heaven. So they've got this duality in their worship. There's this hardening of their hearts against God. They go to Jeremiah towards the end of the book of Jeremiah after uh, Most of the people have been exiled to Babylon and they're like, tell us what God wants us to do. We'll do whatever God says. When Jeremiah says to him, the word of the Lord is to stay in the land and God will defend you. They're like, no, you're not really a prophet. We don't like that word. We're going to Egypt. They they won't even obey the word of the Lord. It's all feigned. We're told that even the priests and the temple are polluted with idolatry. In Ezekiel chapter 11, Ezekiel is allowed to see in the heart and mind of the priests and um, those who ruled the temple, and he sees all sorts of pornography and degradation. The nation is absolutely destroyed. The walls of Jerusalem are torn down. The people are exiled forcibly to Babylon. The temple is ransacked and everything, including the temple, is burned down. It is seemingly impossible at this point for the promises of God to ever, ever be fulfilled. But God has given promises about the nation of Israel, that Judah and Israel will be a nation again. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel talks about the glory of the Lord departing. I believe it's Ezekiel chapter 12. And yet at the end, and I think it's Ezekiel 44, he talks about the glory of the Lord returning to his temple. So you have in the book of Ezekiel, the departure of God's spirit and the destruction of Jerusalem. But the end of Ezekiel is all about the Lord coming back to Israel, coming back to his temple, and about the great restoration that he will bring. Why? Because God has a plan. God always has a plan. He has a promise and a plan for a son of David to sit on the throne. And according to Isaiah 11, 1 and verse 10, the root of Jesse, it was cut off so that it would go back to the purity of David. The stump that was cut down. There's a promise of restoration of the land, a promise of rebuilding the temple because God has a plan. And his plan is to cleanse the people. The plan is to sanctify his people. The plan is to bring his people to repentance and chasten them again so he can bless them. Do you know that God wants to bless you? He he is a blessing God. We're told over and over again that he's a blessing God. In Numbers chapter 6, the priests are told to put God's name upon the people and to bless them. And to say over the people, the Lord bless thee and keep thee and cause his face to shine upon thee. God wants to bless us. God wants to bless those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. God wants to bless his people with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, every blessing you can conceive of.
But we move ourselves from a place of being able to be blessed. We move ourselves by pride. We move ourselves by sin. We move ourselves by self-will. When we think our will is better than God's will, we move from the plan and purposes and blessings of God. So what does God do? He brings chastening in our life, not to destroy us. He lets suffering and hardship come in our lives, not to destroy us but to get us back in line to the place where he can bless us and begin to put us in the smack dab center of his blessed and glorious plans. And this is what he was doing even through the Babylonian captivity. He was working in his people to bring them back into his plan, his glorious plan. He was working repentance in Jehoiakim in prison, just as he did it to King Manasseh when he was in prison in Babylon. He was producing a godly seed for the throne of Israel, producing, purifying the seed of David, humbling the seed of David, readying the seed of David to have the Messiah come through the line. He is bringing purity back to the priestly line through Ezekiel, a priest of the temple who is exiled in Babylon, speaking to the people about purity, giving them the word of God. He is working on behalf of his people. He is allowing Babylon to fall to the Medes and Persians, according to scripture and fulfilling his word in Isaiah 44, that Cyrus would sit as emperor of the world. And not only is he completing his plan, but not one Jew is killed when Cyrus takes over Babylon. Babylon, this forceful, dangerous kingdom is seized, overthrown without the loss of life. Amazing. Only God, no bloodshed. Every Jew is safe. In fact, um, one of the historians said that the Jews went to sleep with Belteshazzar as king and awoke to Cyrus on the throne. It happened in a night And most of the Babylonians and those in Babylon did not even know about the change until the next day. So peaceful was the change. At the same time that Cyrus takes the throne without bloodshed, we're told that God begins to stir up the heart and mind of Cyrus to allow the Jews to return after the 70 years of captivity to the land of Israel to rebuild their temple, to begin the sacrifices again. And he also asked that intercession be made for him. Why? Because God has a plan. God always has a plan. God had written a letter through Jeremiah to the exiles, the very first exiles in Babylon. And in that letter, God spoke to them, Jeremiah 29, 11, And he said, I know the plans I have for you. God has plans, plans for good, to give you a future and a hope. These are God's plans, plans of peace, shalom, good, health, beneficial plans. From our 
text this week, we see how God's plans do not fail. God did everything he said he would do. God raised up Cyrus, put it in his heart. And of those who volunteered to go, we have Zerubbabel, the grandson of Jehoiakim. No throne awaits Zerubbabel in Jerusalem. There's no palace. There's no, there's no prominency. He's going as an exile, an underling. He has to lead a group of exiles. And, and let me tell you a little bit about these exiles. There are perfumers, priests, goldsmiths, and farmers. These are the people, not warriors, not advisors, not builders, not civil engineers, but perfumers, priests, goldsmiths, and farmers to restore a temple, to rebuild and reestablish the promises of God in Israel. He has to take these people over 500 miles across dangerous terrain. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he has to clear away piles and piles of rubble that have, that have sat for 70 years, that are overgrown, that were destroyed and ruined. He has to reestablish and unify the tribes of Israel. He has to initiate again the sacrifices and worship of God. And he has to encourage the people and keep them pure so that the promises of God can be given and seen and received. Arriving in Jerusalem, we learn that the conditions are worse than anticipated. The ravage is greater, massive Boulders are turned over and everything is burned with overgrowth. Not only that, but there is opposition in the land. First, those in the land come to Zerubbabel with the temptation to compromise. Let us help you. And we worship the same God that you do and these other gods. So there is again that temptation to fall back to idolatry, the very idolatry that led the people of Israel and Judah into oppression. There are pagans wanting to help them build the temple. And then there are others who are utterly opposed to any temple for God being rebuilt. The exiles themselves are inexperienced, vulnerable to temptation, and disunited. We're told in Ezra 3.12 that when the foundation of the temple is finally laid, Some are cheering, but some are crying because all they can do is compare it to the old temple. And they're like, it's smaller. It's not as good. It's never going to be the same. Why even bother or try? Some of these Jews are even oppressing the other Jews, taking advantage of their brothers and sisters. And there is a tendency to give up on the building of the temple and put all their concentration on their own houses. They become very self-absorbed and self-centered, which is always a temptation. But in spite of these conditions, Zerubbabel reestablishes the sacrifices to God. He is building a bridge and a relationship to God and making sure that the sins of the people are taken care of and that there can be 
broken fellowship with God so God's blessing can come. The government forces come in and they stop the building of the temple, but they do not stop the daily sacrifices. But even in these circumstances, God has a plan. He always has a plan. God allows the opposition, much like he allowed the people to go out into the wilderness without bread and without fish. God raises up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to speak to the people, to speak to Yeshua, the priest, and to encourage Zerubbabel. They are to begin building even before the opposition is removed. And what does Zerubbabel and Yeshua do when they hear this word? We're told that they both rise up and they begin to build. God uses these circumstances to show the people their need of his presence for prosperity in building the temple for any spiritual work, their need for him, for their personal lives, for health, for financial stability, for warmth, their need for him as a nation for survival and agricultural prosperity. Through the study of Jehoiakim to Zerubbabel, we learn four great things about God's plan. And here they are. And we've gone over them a little bit already. But here it is. Number one, God's plans are eternal. They're eternal. They're not just for the immediate, though they take in the immediate. And he's working things in the immediate. Just like Martha said, I know, I know in the resurrection, my brother will rise again. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha saw it only in the eternal, and Jesus said, no, it's also in the immediate because I'm the one who's going to resurrect the dead. It's me. I'm the life. But they're eternal. God is working about eternal plans. You know, we want quick fixes, don't we? And quick fixes can often lead to greater problems. Have you ever tried to do a quick fix and just had one thing after another go wrong with your quick fix. I did meet one woman and she came to me. She goes, heard about your tooth. This is South Carolina. Heard about your tooth. Well, I got up this morning and I wanted to come to this conference, but my tooth fell out. So I said, devil, you're not going to hurt me. And I put super glue on it and put that thing right back in. (laughs) Quick fix. I told that to my dentist and he said, super glue is the nightmare of every dentist. We're told in Ephesians 1.11 that God is working all things out to the counsel of his will. He's making everything fit into his eternal will. Every king, every president, every senator, every congressman, whether they believe it or not, God is using them for the glory and the counsel of his will. And what is God's ultimate eternal plan? Well, we're told in Daniel chapter two, it's to make all the kingdoms that have ever ruled into chaff and to build a mountain through Jesus, the the stone that the builders rejected, to build out of Jesus a mountain that will fill the whole earth. Someday, someday, very soon, 
Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. This is the ultimate plan. The ultimate plan is to put Jesus on the throne of David, on the throne of the world, and reconcile everything to him. And in that day, the mountains will bring forth singing. The trees of their field will clap their hands. The lion will lay down with the lamb. And the ox and the wolf will graze together and nothing on the earth will harm. All pollution will be gone. I believe even the dodo bird is going to be restored. <laughs> Those things that have gone out of, out of um, sight, that have gone into extinction, God is going to take away every bit of pollution and nuclear fallout. And he is going to make all things new and restore the order. His plans are eternal. They're eternal. But not only are his plans eternal. Remember, I told you that there's four great things. God's plans are good. They are good. Good. They're beneficial. They're of the highest order. They're pure. They're wonderful. They're they're what we all long for within us. His plans are the best plans. Oswald Chambers said, God always does the best work. His work is never inferior. And if there was a better way to do anything, he would choose that way because he always chooses the best ways. As it says in Isaiah 55, his ways are higher than our ways. They're better than our ways. His ways are superior. God's plans are the best plans. He alone is wise. He alone knows the end from the beginning. And in Psalm 119, verse 68, the psalmist says, you are good and you do good. What God is doing is good. Because he is good, because his nature is good, he can only do good. God can't do bad. He can't do evil. He can only do righteous and good and beneficial. In Romans 8, 28, you know the scripture so well. We're told that God works all things together, weaves it together for our good and for the good of those that love him and are called according to his plans and purposes. God's plans are are good, and they're leading to good things. These are good plans. Remember, again, Jeremiah 29, 11, good plans, plans of peace that were to shalom. And shalom means more than just peace. It means health and benefit and good. Thirdly, God's plans are guaranteed. They cannot fail. God's plans will prevail. They cannot fail. God accomplishes everything that he says he will do. In Joshua 23, 14, Joshua says, you know and you have seen that not one good word of what God has promised has failed. God's plans can not and will not fail. 
Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. There is absolutely no possibility of failure with God's plans. It's the only stock and the only investment that's safe. That's guaranteed a return. That's guaranteed dividends and to bear interest. The only guaranteed. I've heard it said, if you want to see God have a good chuckle, tell him your plans. The Lord reminds us in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I take comfort in this verse because His plans are always the best plans. If you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply visit our website at graciouswords.com or call 1-800-733-6443 and refer to it by name, which is Zerubbabel. God has a plan. He always has a plan. Once again, our website is graciouswords.com and our toll-free number is 1-800-733-6443. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll continue our study on the life of Zerubbabel as we make our way through the lineage of the king with Cheryl Broderson. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.